This is Cassie Smith and it is 2 o'clock on August 17th. I am interviewing Dr. Emilio Zamora and his office at the University of Texas in Austin. And this is being conducted for the Emma Esparientos Mexican American Cultural Center Oral History Project. Dr. Zamora, do you give me permission to record this interview on behalf of the Austin History Center for the Ye project? Yes. <laughs> okay, could you please state your full name and spell it for us? Emilio, E-M-I-L-I-O, Zamora, Z-A-M-O-R-A. Sometimes I go by Emilio Solis Zamora. Solis is my mother's name, S-O-L-I-S. Thank you very much. Okay, <laughs> we'll start with where you were born and where you grew up. I was born in a in a, a log cabin. <laughs> <No. laughs> I was born in a little rural community of about twenty families, all related. And the place was called the Solis Ranch. All of these people related to my mother, and they traced their ancestry back to seventeen forty nine. And uh, I st we lived there until I. I lived there as well as in my paternal grandparents' home across the river, um, on and off for four years. Uh, I was born on June the 10th, 1946, and in 1955, um, my family moved from the rural community um, a mile and a half to the town named La Feria, Texas, L-A-F-E-R-I-A, -E Texas, a town of 6,000 people. And so I was raised there, went to schools there, and graduated from high school in 1964. And what was it like growing up there? Uh, it was um, it was home. Uh, on at one level, it was just wonderful. Um, it was just uh, wonderful families, I felt... Uh, I mean, I could roam around the whole town and, and know that my friends' mothers would act like my mother. <laughs> mother, that is, they would feed me, take care of me, and the fathers would always look out for us. Uh, so I always felt that the whole community was home. At the same time, the community was very segregated. We lived on one side of town, and we did not cross the tracks unless we had to. Um, we, I went to uh, an all-Mexican elementary school, and uh, when I went into middle school, they tracked us according to race, and I was fortunate to be placed in the in one track that ended up being the college-bound track. Mm -hmm. And the reason I think that they placed me there is because when I attended Sam Houston Elementary School, I was one of the best students there, and I think my light... Uh, shade, skin shade, <laughs> may have also encouraged some of these people to place me in that one track that was slightly integrated with the, a sprinkling of Mexicans, light-complected, good students. Everybody else basically took the same courses, but the quality of education was not good. So that by the time they, the other track, reached high school, they took um, home economics and uh, and uh, uh, leather crafts and woodwork <laughs> and so I was fortunate to, to find myself uh, in the college track and my grades were not great but they were not bad I think sports is what inspired me mm. to be competitive 
and uh, I had about a B average. I was a good student, and uh, but faced a lot of problems uh, with uh, teachers that weren't very friendly. Uh, I did not see beyond much beyond my high school, in part because my parents themselves didn't know what university opportunities the universities offered us so I ended up going I ended up going to barber school and I graduated became a barber and worked as a barber in Hardingen my dream was to become a millionaire by the time I was <laughs> 26 or 27 my idea was to buy barber shops and then oversee them while others make money for me the problem is that I became a barber when men started styling their hair and they started uh, going to beauty shops and so the b barbering became a very um, it was not a very <laughs> very good profession at the time so I, I had an opportunity to go to a and I went to a and I and I started in January 1965 and uh, graduated from a and I with a BA in 69 came back and got a master's in 72 and once I did that I was accepted in the doctoral program at UT Austin and one of the most important things that happened to me while I was there's a lot of things that happened mm -hmm. to me at A&I that I explained a lot of who I am um, my intellectual development really began there I mean it began much earlier but it really began in earnest uh, I began to more consciously seek to, to learn, to know, to understand, and to apply my understanding to my world. A and it had a lot to do with the politics. The student movement was, um, was very encouraging. The, we encourage each other to look for ways to develop skills to serve our communities. We were very idealistic, I however, we also we're serious about our commitment to serve our communities by becoming teachers or lawyers or whatever. And I, I my first uh, dream at A and I was to become a teacher. And then I, I dropped that and said I wanted to be an attorney. And it's a long story. I'm making it very short. But I ended up deciding to pursue graduate work in mm -hmm. history, in in part because I believe that we need to do more research and write more so that we could effectively teach a Mexican-American history in schools and the universities. Mm -hmm. And how did you first become involved in the Mexican-American student movement? It just happened very naturally for all of us. Um, the, the university wasn't very welcoming. Uh, students were very rude uh, and very and, uh, prone to use, using very racist language. The faculty was too. There were some amazing faculty that encouraged us to, to get together and to talk about the problems we were confronting and our responsibility um, to our communities. I mean, we spoke in those terms. And I remember that we started meeting. And uh, I remember one series of meetings that began in 1960, the, uh, the, the spring of 67 about a year after I had been there. And uh, some people that ended up becoming major leaders, like Jose Angel Gutierrez, mm -hmm. um, the founder of the Raza Unida Party, Carlos Guerra, who became the chair of the Mexican-American Youth Organization statewide, and also 
the campaign manager for a gubernatorial candidate in the Rasunida party in 72 and 74, uh, came out of there. Lupe Youngblood, the chair of the Rasunida party in 72, uh, was also associated with us. And we were very active and very successful as a student movement. We took over student government, and that encouraged us further. We also helped uh, public school students uh, all the way from high school down to elementary, uh, particularly in Kingsville and Rapstown, mm -hmm. to walk out of the schools and protest of the problems that they were facing. So we were involved in our campus politics, but also reached out into our communities and all, um, it, in the walkout, you know, in the walkouts. But we also supported the farm workers and did a whole lot of things with regards to the farm workers and other causes. But, you know, the, our intellectual formation as young people in the, in the 60s and the 70s was intimately tied to our political commitment to change. Mm -hmm. So uh, what we were learning, how we were learning it, was was important because of the purpose we, we gave it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't simply a, a careerist, a, a commitment to, to build a career, but it was a commitment to change not only our communities, but the war. I mean, the world. We were anti-war. We were pro-working class. We, we were pro-other minorities. Uh, we were pro-women's rights. We represented the student movement of the 1960s and 70s one of the most important progressive elements in the mm -hmm. liberal coalitions. The liberal urban-based coalitions that began to emerge very importantly in the 60s and 70s in Texas. Mm -hmm. And were you taking any of those ideas back home? Yes, um, and, and that was a major challenge because, uh, you know, our parents, like all other parents, understood that this was uh, a very risky business to be very public with our identities and our dreams. Uh, um, they worried um, over our safety because it was very dangerous and I remember my mom and dad telling me, you know, that's fine that you pursue your, your, you know, your interests in that way, but you, you have to be careful mm -hmm. and, and we'd rather you not be involved. Um, Things were going on back home too. Some high school students were threatening to walk out of school and so forth in my hometown. Mm -hmm. Parishioners were raising questions in the church because the church was segregated. Mm -hmm. There was uh, masses in the Catholic Church for the English speaking and masses for the Spanish speaking. And there was one mass in which everybody came together, but Anglos sat on one side of the, the aisle and the Mexicans mm -hmm. on the other. So people were raising questions about that as well as the support of the Catholic Church for the farm workers movement in deep south Texas and for the rights of immigrants. So there was a lot of activity over there. A lot of stuff was brewing. Um, it involved the private conversations at home, uh, public conversations at churches and at schools. Um, but it was, it, was, uh, it was slow and the students that were in the movement for the most part were very impatient mm -hmm. and uh, were a little bit more bold and aggressive with their language and actions. Mm -hmm. yeah. And how did you find your way to Austin? Uh, I was going to go to law school. I got married. <laughs> <laughs> I almost got drafted. I was able to avoid the draft. That's another story. I got married 
and then we settled in uh, Laredo, Texas because I joined the Army Reserves and I had to wait to be called to boot camp before I could do anything. Nobody wanted to hire people that had signed up mm -hmm. for the reserves of the National Guard but had not yet gone to boot camp because employers didn't want to hire you and then mm -hmm. see you leave mm -hmm. at any moment. And that was very difficult and uh, my, my dream then was to go to law school uh, I had been accepted at the National Law Center at George Washington University with a deferment and a full um, financial package. Um, however, at the last minute, they, they told me they couldn't get me a deferment and I had to give it up. And that's why I joined the Army Reserves. Mm -hmm. And then I applied at St. Mary's University Law School and for as well as, and they admitted me. And I applied for a scholarship from the Mexican-American Legal uh, Defense and Educational Fund. And uh, they didn't give me a scholarship. They said they had lost my files. That really got me very angry. And I remember a conversation I had with a dear friend who I talked, he was over, on the, over living in California. And we would always talk, whenever we, we talked once a week over the phone, and I told him about my disappointment. And he said, well, you know, let's look at you. He says, when we talk, what do we talk about? I says, we talk history. When you read, what have you been reading history? <laughs> he said, well, maybe that, that should be telling you something. And that's how I decided to pursue a degree in history. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was already involved in, in Laredo, where I lived. I got a job with the Community Action Program, the, the part of the War on Poverty Program mm -hmm. that LBJ pushed for in Congress. The legislation created um, this anti-war anti-poverty program and within it were um, in different localities they named them different things in Laredo they call it the community action program and so I I, I, I got this job and I remember <laughs> the fellow telling me I don't know what you can do for us but we have a mobile home out there and we want we want people to talk history I mean that's one of the things we people have talked about in our in our different community executive committees so I went house by house and got artifacts like photographs, cannonballs, anything, and built a museum inside the, the mobile home. Mm -hmm. And then I went to, to each one of the eight community centers and parked and just welcomed people in. I went and parked a thing at the elementary schools, <laughs> the middle schools, oh, the high schools, and taught history that way. So that, that was part of the conversation I had with the, my friend who said, well, mm -hmm. what do you do? You read this, we talk about this, and what are you doing? You're teaching history. So I applied and I was fortunate to get uh, admitted here. Mm -hmm. Not in history. I got admitted into a multidisciplinary program in Mexican-American studies mm -hmm. at the doctoral level set up by Américo Paredes. Wow. And um, so it w it was, I was very fortunate that I was able to study history but at arm's length from the Department of History, which was very racist at the time and uh, forced a lot of people out of the graduate program. And so I was in the History Department but sufficiently removed so that they couldn't really do me much harm. So I was able mm -hmm. to finish as a result of that. And what was the year? That must have been one of the first, very early on in that program. Okay. Well, I, I got here in 72. And uh, so I was in the program really 73. Uh, and then I left in 75 after my, I had a divorce. Mm -hmm. it, it, it was in 75, 76 when I had the divorce that I ended up in um, 
try to get back on my feet. So I had a teaching job here as an AI, mm -hmm. and I, I, I started teaching with what is Lincoln, mm -hmm. and I was teaching a course at UTSA with a bilingual bicultural program. So I was working three places, running myself ragged, but that's how I got back on my feet. The dissertation, of course, I had to put it aside. Mm -hmm. So when I worked in What is Lincoln, I was going through some really serious personal difficulties, mm -hmm. uh, which involved the divorce, the, the jobs that required that I move all over the place, and and in um, th this constant um, attempts to get back on my dissertation. And I really didn't get back on it until I got a permanent job after I lef left Austin around 78, mm -hmm. 77, 78. And then I taught at UTSA for a year, and then I went back to a and I and taught there four years until 1981. 81, I got a job at UCLA, and I worked till, till 85, 85. And then I got a job at the University of Houston from 85 to 2000. And then I got here in 2000, here at UT Austin. And did you remain active in civic organizations at that time. time? What were some of those organizations? Um, well, uh, when I was uh, working on my master's, and I went back to A&I to work on my master's, and, you know, I had already had that experience of working with, um, with the student movement, with all kinds of organizations, and then a year in Laredo where I worked with the Community Action Program, I come back to A&I working on my master's, and I, I started working with a program called Puerta Abierta, a Puerta Abierta program, and I went around the whole area uh, helping students fill out admissions and financial aid forms. Mm. I got a thousand students admitted with full financial aid in one year. Wow. <laughs> but during that time, I was also involved in, in politics. And the, the organization uh, that I was most involved with was the Rasunida Party. The Rasunida Party really has its origins in 1970 in San Antonio. And then uh, it had some success in rural towns in South Texas. And in 72, it became, 71, it became an official political party vying for a position in the general elections in the state of Texas. And one of the challenges we were facing then, there was continuing walkouts as well. So I was involved in the, in, with students in organizing walkouts and, and doing teach-ins for them. But I was also involved in going house by house, getting signatures to get the party on the ballot, the early mm -hmm. part of uh, I may have been there a lot of part of 71, early part of 72. And uh, there's two ways to get on the ballot for a political party to get on the ballot. You either pay a filing fee mm -hmm. or you get signatures. We decided to get the signatures. We didn't have the, m the money to be thrown around. And, and anyway, we saw it as a good way to get people to learn or hear about the party, to force us to go and talk to people face to face and to train ourselves on how to speak about the party, how to build the party. So we had meetings on, on the, ca the, the signature campaign. We had meetings on t where we learned about the pre rules for running precinct uh, meetings and running for precinct uh, positions in the precinct at the county level, state level. Mm -hmm. it, it involved a lot of political education. And so when I left in 72, I came to Austin, the signature campaign was still going on. So I immediately joined the party. Uh, uh, once we got the party in the ballot, then the big challenge was to get people 
to, to agree to be candidates. We were fortunate to get Ramsey Muniz, who was living in Fort Worth at the time, and we had other people that decided to run for different offices. And in Austin, we decided, Barrientos, by the way, mm -hmm. um, uh, Senator Gonzalo Barrientos, was part of another cause in Austin mm -hmm. that involved a lot of these a uh, little bit older than us folks who had come out of different organizations in East Austin um, and businesses. And they, they put Gonzalo Barrientos up to run for state representative at the same time in 72 that we were entering the electoral politics. In other words, there's a liberal tradition that involves Mexican-Americans that results in 72 in Austin with, um, with uh, the Gonzalo's decision to run for state representative. We decided that we were going to run four people for the state representative position and that uh, to draw attention we would each have, uh, I was one of them, mm -hmm. we would each have um, our campaign group and so forth. And at a, at a certain point, we were all going to step down and announce the support, and announce our support for one of the, these mm -hmm. people. His name was Gutierrez, mm -hmm. Armando Gutierrez. He was a professor in, in government at the time. And that's what we did. And um, so we supported uh, him. Um, now, the Razonida Party is a story in itself, okay? So I'm not going to talk more about it, but. Uh, um, I was part of the student movement, part of the Razonida, and then lay, I'll, I'll go forward a little bit more. Uh, the campaigns in which Razonida participated was 72, 76, and 78. They're very important historically. It's a time when uh, conservative whites began to leave the Democratic Party in large numbers, in part because of the liberal, urban-based liberal coalition that involved minorities mm -hmm. like Gonzalo Arrientos and us. Um, there was a split within the Liberal Coalition, but the Liberal Coalition as a whole was coming in strong the Democratic Party, and it was opening up in part because of the challenge we were making, you see, and people like Gonzalo Arrientos benefited, mm -hmm. you see, we, we were the Malcolm X's, they were the Martin Luther King's, they, they benefited from the pressure from the left, mm -hmm. but um, in 76, I, I became the chair of the Russian Party in Travis County. And uh, an interesting side note, just to give you a sense of uh, the participation of women. Uh, I was, uh, I, I always was with, I was always with the women. I always sided with the women. I, I always sided for women's mm -hmm. rights. And the women, including Marta, Marta Cotera, Ines uh, Hernandez, uh, Malerena Martinez, oh, a bunch of other people. Um, uh, cared for me and respected me and they approached me and they said we want you to run for a Russian party chair we want you to understand that we will support you the women but the, we the women will have a say on what happens once you get elected and the reason we want to do that is because we want to propose Austin or San Marcos as the next site for the state convention and we want to be in control of the convention because we want to put forth certain positions regarding the war regarding women. A a and that's why I got elected. We had uh, the women supported me and I was like the figurehead, the male figurehead. Mm -hmm. And we then organized the convention and women had a great thing, to s a lot of things to say. Mm -hmm. 
at that convention. And uh, so my, my years, that's what was going on in my life um, in uh, around the time that uh, Juarez Lincoln then appeared in Austin. Juarez Lincoln it, it comes out of um, a meeting in La Lomita, it, which is a, uh, a, a church property in South Texas, close to Mission, Texas. In 72, in 70, uh, in seven in seventy, or was it sixty nine? Sixty nine seventy. I was in Laredo. In Laredo, remember I said that. I was in Laredo, and uh, I was involved with a number of organizations and newspapers. And uh, somebody made a call for a meeting to talk about what, how we're going to move the movement. And the meeting was held at Mission Texas at La Lomita. We had general assemblies and we had breakout sessions. Mm -hmm. And one of the breakout sessions was on education. And I was there. A whole bunch of people were there. There must have been like 50, 75 people. And uh, I remember Leonard Mestas was one of the major persons who spoke mm -hmm. on the problems that we were facing. Leonard Mestas was from New Mexico. And um, he now is working in the Archbishop's office in Brownsville, Texas. Mm -hmm. He was a he was a priest who left the priesthood for a while to become involved in the movement. Very bright guy, very seriously committed to change. And he said, "What was being said all over the country among Mexican Americans, we need to infiltrate the institutions, educational institutions in this case. But we also have to set up our own alternative institutions because once you get into the universities, you lose control." You have to abide by bureaucratic rules, like the university. We need to have our own educational systems. And uh, people in Colorado were saying the same thing from California. We need to have our own institutions. African Americans were fortunate to, you know, mm -hmm. they, they had their own schools in part because they didn't want them in the all-white schools, but they got something. So the idea was proposed, we need to set up uh, colleges. Antioch University has already demonstrated an interest in sponsoring alternative uh, universities for the community with the idea of training people to teach the youngsters. That was it. A and the idea was that we could then expand to, you know, to make mm -hmm. it a full educational system. Two schools came out of there. You may know some of this history already, but it's worth um, repeating. Uh, one of them was um, Jacinto Trevino, mm -hmm. established in Mercedes, Texas, named after a Mexican-American who had a shootout with the Texas Rangers and killed a couple of them. But that gives you a sense of the spirit mm -hmm. behind this. And it was, it was um, Marta Cotera and Juan Cotera, by the way, went there. Mm -hmm. They're very important in the story of Juarez Lincoln, in part because they, they were at the meeting and then they volunteered, left her work. She utilized a librarian, and he, as, a, as an architect, went to work there. The school was very poor. Um, they did have the support of Antioch. In other words, it was accredited, mm -hmm. but it didn't have enough people to teach. It, uh, the tuition was very high. Times were very hard. The area was economically depressed, and there was a lot of... Um, uh, it was a reaction against them, uh, a minister in South Texas particularly. 
anyway, at the same time that that's going on, another school is established, and I think it was Fort Worth or somewhere up there in northern Texas. And uh, Leonard Mestas went there with uh, Evie Chapa, who was one of these women in the Rasunia party, one of the major, major figures. She went over there, and there's other people that went over there. And for some reason, they decided to come to Austin. I don't know that. I, I don't know why. But they arrive in Austin, I think. I'm not entirely sure. But they, they arrive... Um, I'd say 1969, 70, mm -hmm. 70 maybe, maybe 70. And uh, so that became a hub, I mean, like an institution of our own that naturally drew people, people from the university, people from East Austin, mm -hmm. uh, activists like Brown Berets, professionals. I mean, it, it became a very important center. It's no accident that the idea of a community center should, should emerge, re-emerge there. People had been talking about this, pr primarily the artists working with Lucha. They'd been talking about setting up their own institution in East Austin. And they, I, I think it was Lucha. I remember that one of my colleagues here, uh, Ines Hernandez, who was also Rasunida, she was teaching here. Mm -hmm. uh, she was working very closely with the Concheros. I don't know if you know about the Conchero tradition. The Conchero tradition is a religious um, that uh, religious r ritualistic uh, uh, um, a religious ritual mm -hmm. in which uh, indigenous people dance to God mm -hmm. you know to creation so uh, so they set up that organization and they connected it they were really closely connected to uh, the source the conchero source in Mexico City mm -hmm. and I, I think that was a group that really, gave life to this idea of a separate artist community. Brown Berets were connected, but it was Lucha. In other words, the Concheros became Lucha. Out of Lucha comes the Conjunto Aslan, a bunch of poets. The, 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 the literary festival, Floricanto, was hosted at Juarez Lincoln mm -hmm. and other places. And so the, the artists were very, very important, and they're the ones who brought this idea of a community center into Juarez Lincoln. And Juarez Lincoln was like, was the community center, it was just inviting people to come in, run very strictly by Leonard Mestas, because we had a very serious purpose, mm -hmm. <laughs> to teach. And so I, I got a job to teach. I was a member of the faculty. We had satellite campuses in Corpus, the Valley, Laredo, El Paso, but this was the mother um, campus, mm -hmm. a building, an old building. Very, I thought it was a very beautiful building. Uh, we had space, we had a place, and it was a university a, a, a sponsored by Antioch, accredited by the state. Um, we were getting grants to produce materials on migrant education, for example. We were producing that. We had a library. We had um, um, outreach. Mm -hmm. The classes basically involved the one-to-one -one relationship. People would, would sign up for their master's in education for the most part, and they'd meet with you on a regular basis. You work up a plan, you give them credit for 
what they had learned in some work-related mm. activities. That was part of it. It was called an education without walls, mm. where you acknowledge the learning that people had had outside the, the classroom. So we worked up a plan, individual plans, and then you know assigned readings, uh, assigned writing, writings, um, had serious discussions. Um, applied what they learned to the classroom, came back with reports. It was a really very progressive uh, educational model. Bar bar they borrowed a lot from Antioch people. Mm -hmm. They were very, very progressive. Um, I, 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 you know, so my relationship with, with um, the MAC uh, begins when the MAC was just in its early, early stages where it was an idea and an idea of a, of a, cent a community center mm -hmm. primarily devoted to the arts because it was the artists who initiated it. Um, but it was always, uh, we never, one of the things that has bothered me about the way people see the MAC is that they see it in very strict artistic terms. We saw everybody as being potentially an artist, if not an artist already. Um, art is life. <laughs> it, it's how you see life and how you, how do you interpret life, how you connect your life with, with the rest of the world. I think art, in the, in the broad sense of the word, is what defined what the artists were doing. They were very open. Everybody was writing poetry at the time, I remember. You know, everybody would attend the, the the teatro things. Everybody would attend all these artistic events. Everybody would go to them. You get inspiration. Um, the artists, a lot of times, weren't bound. They gave you ideas. It was really, truly, the artists really, really nourished that creative uh, spirit. So the idea began <laughs> as a very broadly defined artistic endeavor. Mm -hmm. and, and in practical terms, it was called a, a center. Mm -hmm. We want a community center, and that's where it comes from. I left. Um, uh, once I got a full-time job at UTSA, I left Waters Lincoln, mm -hmm. and uh, I left Austin, and then I pursued my career. And I, when I ended up in, I'd come back and visit, but when I came to Austin, I mean to Houston in 1981, um, I think Juarez Lincoln was already winding down, and I don't know about the idea of uh, of a center at the time. But the, the next time I really made a connection, I think it was in a 19, 1998. We came to Austin. We were coming to Austin a lot, and we came to Austin and attended the um, the Pastorela. Uh, production and it was just uh, so amazing it was just so beautiful uh, th I remember that it was at the old building um, I don't know exactly where it was but there's an old building and they s and basically the people sat around and the production was in the middle with one stage on one end another stage on the other end and the actors running back and <laughs> forth <laughs> but it was a beautiful production um, and then um, and then, of course, when we moved, we attended um, installation ceremonies. But um, 
my close association with Juarez uh, with uh, the Mac uh, then occurred when we moved here, and my daughter became very involved in the Pastorela. Mm -hmm. So that that's how I'm connected to the center. I even I, I was I even acted. <laughs> Were you there? I remember that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they just pulled me in. My gr my girl was uh, in the Pastorela for about four to five years, mm -hmm. five years. In the last year, we were both in it together. Because mm -hmm. I'm practically the, the one who raised my children. Angela's uh, been so busy. But I always just take her to practice. And this one last year that we were in it, uh, what's his name, Donato, was mm -hmm. supposed to play the part of the, the narrator. And he quit <laughs> three, four days before the production was supposed to go on. And so the director, What's her name? Anyway, she she came up and says, "We want you to do it. You've been here every day. You've read the script. And it's no big deal. I hadn't read it all. I didn't know what I was getting into." I says, "All right." Tur turned out to be a major undertaking. I had been on stage before mm -hmm. when I was an undergraduate, but uh, I mean, it's been so long ago. <laughs> uh, I loved theater, mm -hmm. so I enjoyed it. I, I, I enjoyed it in part because you do a lot of introspection mm -hmm. when you're in theater, and at my age, I think I I I, I had to do that one more time. Mm -hmm. I mean, in that way. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that that's my my association with um, with the mag is um, is really somewhat limited. the 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 reason why I agreed to to this interview is because I have something. That is that is special, and that is I can look at this thing historically mm -hmm. as a participant and things that led to the Mac. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was involved in things that led to the Mac, and I I had very close personal political relationships with people that have been in it, like Marta, mm -hmm. Marta Cotera. Um, how do you feel that the climate in Austin changed from that time when you were working at Juarez Lincoln until when you came back? And if you could refresh my memory on when you actually moved back to Austin. I, I left in, in um, I left in uh, 70, 70, I think 77, 77, 78, and I returned in 2000. Okay. Um, I mean, I kept coming back to visit and everything. But what was it like then, and how how is it different from what the way it is now? Well, in many ways, it's no different. In many ways, no different. You still have uh, so many people that are so passionate about mm -hmm. uh, the Mexican American community, and you find these people in various organizations. You 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 find then as well as now find very important differences of opinion about about the nature of the problems, what to do with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a lot of frustration now as there was then because of the slow change and, and the challenges that you're always facing. But one of the big differences I think is that, um, and I think you see it in, in various realms, is that we now have large numbers of people in different positions. I mean, the most of us that were involved were for the most part students, mm -hmm. a couple of professionals here and there. But uh, we we weren't tied into resources. We didn't have resources. I mean, Antioch was 
was, you know, came down from heaven for us. I mean, it wasn't something that you expect to appear in the 1970s. I mean, these days you've got all kinds of organizations that may differ with you, but but they're approachable. You can talk to people in the Hispanic Business Association. You can talk to people and, and um, that are involved with the teachers' organizations or organized labor, with the nonprofits and stuff. We didn't have that. Mm -hmm. I I think we have many more resources, and a lot of the people that were involved in and came up. Um, through all these very difficult moments, are 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 in those positions. Mm -hmm. We didn't have one or two faculty here in this university. Now we have a little bit more, mm -hmm. so that I think um, an institution like the Mac can it does have resources, can draw on resources. It, there's great potential for the Mac that we didn't have for for what is Lincoln. For example, mm -hmm. back then, with all the differences and all the cute personalities, I think it's much better now. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. And can you talk about this relationship between cultural and political empowerment? This is something that I'm personally interested in. Uh, cultural and political empowerment, empowerment at the same time, because you you were active in a lot of political organizations, but I see that the artists become active too and maybe if that was taking part in Austin well you know political empowerment is a subset of cultural empowerment mm -hmm. cultural empowerment for me is, is broader and more profound because mm -hmm. it, 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 it goes from you know an individual you know doing what individuals do you know going through this process of introspection all your life trying to figure out who you are and then being open about who you are, where you're going and so forth and so many things go into that, particularly relationships, mm -hmm. relationships that you politicize. So I, I see I see cultural empowerment that way is very basic and profound, operating at the individual level and at the public organized level. And um, I think that the artist movement, the the artists contributed significantly to the cultural empowerment because I, I think they they were inspirational in that they 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 were public. Mm -hmm. Those questions we ask ourselves privately or with with very close friends. I mean, uh, uh, the movement is that in public. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. Look at what the women were saying. You know, uh, what were they saying? The personal was po po political. Mm -hmm. That was like a major uh, issue. But the artists were inspirational in that they were they were uh, asking that those questions publicly. Who are mm -hmm. we? What responsibilities do we have to each other? And how do we meet those responsibilities in a in an ethical manner, in a caring way? And what kinds of dreams do we have? And how do you make them happen without creating harm along the way. Mm -hmm. All of that for me is cultural empowerment where you get, you're encouraged mm -hmm. um, by others who are, are braver than you, <laughs> mm -hmm. who go public. Look, the people that, that get do those skits, they're burying their souls, man. It's not like getting on stage. Mm -hmm. To get up there and dress like, a, like, a, like an indigenous person and then do this ritual in mm -hmm. front of people who have been raised Catholic and then 
you know, the, the, it's, just, it's just foreign to people here as anything else. But they're trying to, they're trying to recapture the ancestral ties, mm -hmm. and sometimes with uh, with nothing to help them. And I think it's very brave. Mm -hmm. So y you, at the very least, extend some, give them your attention. And and then once you get drawn in, you start thinking about it. So that, that's cultural empowerment for me, getting encouraged to express um, desires and wishes and so forth. The political empowerment comes when you when you start um, taking those relationships that have become very personal, public, political, personal relationships, and then tie them into specific projects. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I've seen pro political projects fail, and I've seen them prosper. And I think the key is to build political relationships on the basis of personal relationships. Mm -hmm. uh, and and those personal relationships have to be, you know, healthy relationships where people respect each other and are somewhat like-minded, mm -hmm. respectful, and so forth. I don't know if that makes sense. For me, it makes sense. <laughs> the personal and the public. I just have seen in, in my research a lot of the same people are involved politically that, that help get the Mac started. So I kept seeing this correlation of the same people being involved in both yeah, yeah. in both groups. So I think that's really interesting. I think uh, I think that one of the things that, that is important about a place like the Mac is that it's like a physical embodiment of all these, these the passion, the, mm -hmm. the dreams, the uh, all this stuff that, that we say that we are, you know, then gets kind of dramatized and mm -hmm. embellished and, and it becomes something physical, but it's the physical has to have something attached to it, the meaning. Mm -hmm. So the Mac has all this meaning. It's not just obviously a, a beautiful building, it has meaning and the meaning comes from these memories, you know, these of people going public and then uh, and then um, organizing these political projects mm -hmm. that you know the movements these causes they they they, um, they become causes because people get all self-righteous and, and moral and stuff and so whatever they create they then give it that symbolism and that's what mm -hmm. it's like um, a, a survivor of the wars man mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, a good survivor a good product result of the of the wars of the 70s and the 80s mm -hmm. uh, there's um, there's uh, I don't know if you've seen the the little film that Gilbert um, did. Lincoln yeah I think that captures so much in a very odd way uh, about the meaning you give to these things I mean it was so it was so moving for me to see how a dream that takes the form of a physical building that is associated with this building you know <laughs> faces this uh, destruction mm -hmm. the buildings destroyed the dream gets stronger but the the dream suffers too. Uh, so I don't know. I think the Mac is is uh, what Waters Lincoln was, mm -hmm. and the Mac uh, 
if the Mac was ever to be physically destroyed, it would also produce those kinds of very profound feelings mm -hmm. that results from seeing that film. That's a wonderful film. I'm going to use it in class this year, and I'm going to. Uh, I think it's it's. Um, I think there's so much there. I mean, I've given it some thought. I, I'm sure I don't. I haven't captured everything, but I want to see what the students say. Mm -hmm. You know, because. Um, the 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 idea of uh, that the ball hitting that angel with the extended arms in the face. I mean, she's just there stoically taking it, and then you hear these sounds. It sounds like La Llorona, mm -hmm. the, the sounds from the legend of the woman who goes and kills her children because she doesn't mm -hmm. want them to suffer or whatever. It's like the the. Oh, it's horrible. It's like the, the spirit of La Llorona mm -hmm. reminding us that, uh, you know, earthly stuff can be destroyed. Mm -hmm. so, but just that, that, that figure, I mean, she was... Beautiful. She didn't move. She was just like, just... Yeah. How, how dare they? I mean, how? Oh, Jesus. I, I, if I had been a worker, I would have walked off. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have been able to do that like to know the the name of the construction company I don't think that you can see that in the film but it seems intentional right that, that oh. that's where they start hitting her in the forehead I mean it, it doesn't seem like they just picked a random place but just did you start say something about the name of the place yeah I was just wondering curious who the, who the construction oh, or yeah. the wrecking company was yeah that would be good to know yeah um so let's transition to your work with the MAC on the advisory board. How did you decide to, to become involved in that way on the board? Marta Cotera. Uh, I'm, we're very close to Marta Cotera. And we visit with her regularly. And she was always telling us about the discussions, arguments, and differences and projects and stuff. And then uh, she decided to step down. And she asked me if I wanted to serve. And uh, I agreed in part because she was asking me, but also because I was always been fascinated by by that place. I mean, next to the Juarez Lincoln, I don't think there's any other institution in the Mexican American and Mexican American history that, that is at the same level, or even more important. I mean, I mean, it was Juarez Lincoln, and then there's the Mac. Mm -hmm. There's nothing like that in between, before or after. Nothing. I mean, what? Seamus? So I was, I was, I was encouraged by Marta, and uh, and I, I wanted um, to make a connection between the university and uh, and the Mac, and give it that kind of, uh, you know, uh, strength in programming, and, and then I, you know, I just. Uh, I, I I just ended up real quickly liking the people who I was with, working with, uh, with some exceptions. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the folks involved in the MAC are wonderful folks, you know, just wonderful. Erlinda's doing a great job, I think. Uh, the fellow that was there before was doing a great, I can't remember his name right now, Simon. I'm sorry. Huh? Simon. Simon. Simon's great. Mm -hmm. Simon was so giving. Mm -hmm. She was so giving. Um, that's what the reason why the place has been successful because of the people that have 
mm-hmm. you know, contributed to it. Uh, but you know, so you know, I Marta, the opportunity to connect with the university, and then working with folks there really. And how did your um, kind of your point of view of the Mac change working on the board as a board member? Or well, I, I I didn't realize how bureaucratic the process is. It's it's too bureaucratic. It's just. Uh, keeping the Mac from developing further. That's, mm-hmm. that's one of my views. Um, I, I, I don't think it ought to be operating within parks. I think it ought to be independent. I think all community centers ought, ought to have more freedom uh, to encourage community people to get involved. I think the, bu- the bureaucratic rules, uh, I think, account for the distance. It's not that a team that doesn't want people to be involved or is not welcoming. It's just that, you know, you charge a fee. You mm-hmm. have to, you know, you have to have a schedule. That means you have to plan things. And if you don't show up on time, you can't get on. If you don't have the money to rent the place, you can't use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if the board wants to raise money, they can't do it. it. You know, and then you have to constantly have to put out these little fires, you know, misunderstanding with, with uh, Park's people, mm-hmm. sometimes unnecessary fights, you know. But I think the major, I, one of the things I've learned is that it, the Mac's major problem is it's, uh, the bureaucratic rules. It's, it's its strength, too, right? because it's become very, very formal, and it, as it should be. I mean, you have to take care of these places. One of the problems in the movement, in the social movements that I've been involved with, is that we're, we're so democratic, we allowed everyone and anyone with any ideas to come in and do as they pleased. Mm-hmm. And I think we needed a middle position where we, we, we all need to be open, but we can't be stupid either. <laughs> You know, we also need to have rules mm-hmm. about how you come in and for, for what purpose. So I, I think the MAC ought to move away from bureaucracy, bureaucratic rules a little bit, uh, but to be careful to maintain uh, some some rules, mm-hmm. some order, because uh, you can't, as, uh, what's his name, uh, the, the famous debates between Thomas Jefferson and, and Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> you know, Alexander, Alexander Hamilton feared the mobocracy, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, if you really practice democracy, then you're going to have all the rabble, you know, coming in and taking over. <laughs> I don't want to put it in those terms, but Jefferson would say, but on the other hand, we have to trust democracy. Mm-hmm. So there's a middle road. Yeah, to strike a balance between, you know, mature, grown-up understandings mm-hmm. and and openness. And how do you see the Max role in the community here in Austin, and in, and specifically in the art community? Well, I I think uh, I think it should be more open, and it means you know separating it. One way to separate itself from 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 parks. You know the last program that they had with this woman artist who brought in this 
wouldn't it so amazing? It's mm -hmm. extraordinary. If artists, you know, there's some great artists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if these great artists that are among us are given the opportunity to put things on the table and see them through, I mean, put them on the table, meaning to, to discuss them, to mm -hmm. share them, to get approval, to get help, and then to put them on, uh, on stage. I mean, you, you can have some wonderful stuff. I think that program uh, promoted um, all kinds of things, uh, respect and support for the immigrant community, uh, openness in terms of ideas and, and voice, then there's also the the great exhibit that that was on at the same time, but the fellow on the narcos, mm -hmm. uh, that's powerful stuff. So this, the Mac could become a major center of not only art but thought mm -hmm. and culture. Now I I I wish it would open up more to artisans. Mm -hmm. uh, I wish it would. Uh, be more open in defining what art is. I think it should be more inclusive. It's it can be it can be much more inclusive. Mm -hmm. And I think this program. What's that artist name? The woman I can't. Margarita Cabrera. I mean those kinds of things that where you involve the community uh, are just extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And I I think I think the attendance was great. Mm -hmm. It can always be better, but once word gets out, people are going to be coming in droves. But I, I, I think I do think uh, history is not just a craft; it's an art as well. You know, mm -hmm. teaching is not just a exactly. <laughs> it's an art to know how to uh, to understand, respect children, and then to know how to speak to them and know how to recognize. The, the profound stuff that goes on learning mm -hmm. that's art that's art so I I wish they, and I, that's one of the things that I, I brought in in the first two meetings I made that argument and I got opposition very quickly no and in fact my perception I'm dramatizing this a bit basically was that there was some people were saying we want highbrow art that's basically was a response to me. And I used examples of artists like Valdez, mm -hmm. who did the artwork in Guadalajara, and the response was, no, we don't want that kind of artist. I got so angry. And I said, well, you're mistaken. Art involves all kinds of artists, Valdez and others, it but it also involves I think it, it has to have a broader definition. Mm -hmm. I said, historians are, can be artists. No, they're not. Yes, they are. <laughs> what do you think have been some of the, the hardest challenges that the MAC has faced? Communications with uh, parks. And the other challenge is, uh, I think, is that board members, I think, may feel somewhat um, constrained by the rules, but also mostly because of the rules. I mean, the board could do a lot more mm -hmm. if you just let them go, if they give them more freedom. Um, I think the other challenge, obviously, has been the lack of staff. Mm -hmm. I mean, practically, I mean, practical terms, there hasn't been enough 
uh, I mean, we we went and Juan, myself, and Celia, and I don't know who we went and confronted the city manager, and we confronted this other guy, Lumbreras, mm-hmm. about five years ago, four years ago. We said, "Hey, you know, we're, we're running on low, guys. We only have two or three staff persons. We're supposed to have eight, and then they gave us two more." And uh, this, you know, you, if you overburden the staff, you're, you're going to end up with a bigger problem. They're going to quit on you, or they're going to just, uh, oh, who knows? But you have the staff has to be content. I mean, I think they're very devoted, mm-hmm. and I think in part because they see the value of what they're doing, it's wonderful. But you need more people. That's the other challenge, I think. But the uh, the the other big challenge is the connection with the, com- the community members. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm not I'm not the kind of person that believes that the community only is only in East Austin. The community is also the professionals. The community is also the teachers. The community are also all kinds of children. You know, the community is broad and big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it it is. It should be me- working class Mexican American families too. But that's not the only. But so we should open up to all, much more to all communities. Yes, especially Mexican American. But um, there's a lot more that can be done. But that—that's the other challenge: opening up, uh, connecting more effectively. Because those perceptions are so horrible. You could—you could be open. In other words, it's not just you don't. You have to do more than just open up. You also have to. Make sure that people understand mm-hmm. that there's goodwill and so forth. Um, I think the publicity has to involve some some kind of public relations too. Mm-hmm. People need to understand, man. <laughs> the board is subject to rules under under these bureaucratic rules, and they don't have the freedom to do everything they're supposed to do. Somebody's calling me. I do my daughter. I'm supposed to pick her up. Let me just check with her. Okay. Um, what re- have been some of the most rewarding aspects of being involved with the MAC? The relationships that I have built with Juan, for example. Uh, Juan and I have become very good friends. Mm-hmm. And um, and we're very open and frank with each other. I tell her, I tell him <laughs> when uh, he needs to tone things down. I do tell him he doesn't listen to me all the time, but uh, the relationship I with him, I have with him, I value a great deal because I think it's it's made us better servants, mm-hmm. better members. Uh, um, I think um, I think a lot of the activities that that the, that have been sponsored by the Mac is just I've enjoyed them, mm-hmm. I just loved them. La pastorela is such a great thing. The the mariachi production they did of and uh, the different uh, panels that we've had addressing a mm-hmm. number of issues enjoyed them so um, and you know um, I take pride in, in being involved in things I've always I've always done that and that that um, just fulfills me you know. so it's been an honor to be associated with the MAC for what three four years and I could say that I you know, I did something. I tried. Mm-hmm. You know, so it. I think the personal relationships 
that I've developed with people, and then and then I've enjoyed a lot of the um, programs, mm -hmm. and then uh, and I feel pretty satisfied that I I contributed something, made time mm -hmm. to do something. And what is your vision? Next to five, ten years, what do you foresee? I think the Mac is going to be there in five or ten years. The question is, what is it going to look like? I think. Um, I think there's going to be greater demand for public programming mm -hmm. of uh, uh, an artistic nature, and I think the Mac is going to be expected to do more. And I just hope the resources are there. Uh, I I hope we get out of this damn crisis. Once we get out of it, I think uh, things will turn favorably for the Mac in terms of resources. And I I hope I, people are, are saying that they they support the idea of taking the Mac out of parks. I think if that happens, it'll be good. Um, if there's more resources and the MAC staff and the board have more um, freedom to do as they please, then I think it's going to be greater and better. I think that it, you know, I, 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 it is, it is uh, an urban-based, regionally-based center, but I think it should reach and be out and become an uh, um, obtain some kind of national stature. Mm -hmm. I think that's one challenge that's going to, uh, in other words, it ought to ha have a close working relationships with uh, the Hispanic museums in, in Albuquerque and in Los Angeles and Chicago and, and Erlinda and Linda should be visiting those places and those organizations ought to have some kind of uh, consortium so that they can help each other out and mm -hmm. co-sponsoring things that they can share writing proposals I, I think that's the way to go too that's a direction mm -hmm. that I think is very promising but I don't know I don't I don't have I don't have much faith that it'll happen uh, in part because people are so overwhelmed with what they have to do now mm -hmm. but once you take out parks add more resources then I think that's a possibility the other is to incorporate the immigrant community more, particularly the artisans, mm -hmm. I think, in a broader definition of artwork. I think this place uh, could become a national institution. I think it should seriously consider that mm -hmm. as soon as the things get better. You know, we're going to have Michicarte, too, with a beautiful big building, I think, uh, maybe. I, I, I don't know what the relationship is going to be like. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's another challenge. I think Michicarte and the MAC need to be real clear <laughs> about how they're going to cooperate. Mm -hmm. Because um, Silvia is very effective. Uh, Silvia should not be on the board with the MAC. I think she's a very good builder but her um, you know I have a lot of respect for her I think she's done great things for the Mac and this does not reflect on her she ought to just focus on on Mexicarte and make that grow and have a really good working relationship with the Mac I think both could benefit a lot more mm -hmm. I think she needs to devote all her energy especially now with the attempt to get it on the bond I think uh, it's gotten dicey. I don't know if you've heard. But anyway, I think the relationship that it has with local institutions but then the national ones is mm -hmm. important. Great. Is there anything that you would like to add that we haven't covered already? 
uh, no, uh, Gloria Spitia, <laughs> you're always uh, honoring other people, uh, and she should. All of this is that she should be honored too. People should be reminded about the, all that she does, encourages others to do. I've always been saying that. <laughs> I, remember she, I don't know if she <laughs> remember the program where she was honoring all the trailblazers. Mm -hmm. I put it on one of my talks. She's a trailblazer too. Mm -hmm. I think she's uh, she's made a big difference. And this is the kind of stuff that can tie things together. Yeah. Yeah. So you get to know what everybody's doing. I I hope that whatever comes out of this in terms of a public program um, speaks to that. You know what is our relationship with Mexicarte, you know, what is our relationship with the university and so forth, the schools, mm -hmm. you know, given this history, this is who we are, this is who we're becoming, so how we're going to fit into the larger picture. I think that's what people should be asked to talk about what it's going to look like mm -hmm. in five or ten years as you, as you asked. I think that's a very important question. Mm -hmm. I think that's a central question. Mm -hmm. So I would I would say that too. Uh, don't you think? Yeah, I think it's very important, and I hope that people will use all that passion that they have that is so strong. That's what every why everyone yeah. was involved. Whether the passions were different, that passion exists and is there, and you can do a lot with that. But you have to work together. Mm-hmm. Yes, you have to work together. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much. It's been a privilege to talk to you today. Thank you. Thank you.